Hello and welcome to a History of Christian Theology. My name is Chad Kim. With me this week will be Dr. Kelly Kapik. We'll be discussing Dr. Kapik's new book, You're Only Human, How Your Limits Reflect God's Design and Why That's Good News, recently published with Brazos Press. Uh, we talk through the book itself, um, and then we connect it to a few historical figures of the faith, like Tertullian and St. Augustine, uh, which will be no surprise to my listeners. Um, I do love St. Augustine. Um, and uh, we also talk, even at the end, a little bit about the Donatist controversy and how that relates to the podcast, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. So I know that you'll appreciate this conversation. Um, I sure did. Learned a lot from Dr. Kapik. Uh, I just wanted to uh, thank uh, Mike Callahan, who's one of our new Patreon supporters. Um, we've had a few new supporters over the last couple weeks, um, so it's always helpful to be able to pay for uh, some of the costs of keeping the podcast online. Um, and so I appreciate that. Wanted to say thank you to him. We've also had a few new comments on our uh, podcast on Apple iTunes. Uh, my ministry says, this is the blind leading the blind. The podcast lacks the most important part of Christianity, which is the relationship with Christ. So apparently, uh, my ministry thinks I have no relationship with Christ. So I can't do a whole lot with that one, but, uh, there you go. Uh, we also had a comment from B Farley who says, love the topics, but it's unpolished. The interviewer has a clear sounding equipment, but his interview style is poor. Lots of yeahs and hard pivots. Uh, so I will try to do better uh, about how I interview people. Of course, this is not my primary training, uh, and I'm sort of learning on the fly. So I appreciate your forbearance uh, as I try to get better at this interviewing stuff. Um, I've appreciated getting to interview these scholars. So, um, yeah, sorry if, uh, if I don't always uh, sound like I should be on TV or something. Um, yeah, so, uh, but we do appreciate all reviews. Apparently any reviews help us on iTunes. Uh, so, uh, feel free to leave us one of those that can help others find the podcast. I also wanted to make a plug for an, our upcoming guest, uh, Dr. David Bentley Hart's new book, Tradition and Apocalypse will also be coming out, uh, with, uh, Baker Academic Press. And, uh, I've had a chance to read it already and I'm getting ready to interview Dr. Hart next week. And I'm really looking forward to that conversation. So we'll have that out in a few weeks. Uh, we also have a few more episodes of conversations between Tom and Trevor and I about historical theologians and their works. Um, so be looking out for those. Thanks for listening. Sorry for the long intro. Uh, do find us on iTunes, uh, Facebook, Twitter, uh, Patreon, uh, all those places. Search A History of Christian Theology and you're bound to find us. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Kelly Kapik. Very good. Okay, good. Right. Well, today I have with me uh, Dr. Kelly Kapik. Uh, Dr. Kapik is the professor of theological studies at Covenant College. Um, and Dr. Kapik has uh, written a book called You're Only Human, How Your Limits Reflect God's Design and Why That's Good News with uh, Brazos Press. Um, so I'm thankful to them for sending me a copy of the book so I could have a chance to look through it, uh, learn from it a little myself. Um, and then get a chance to talk with uh, uh, Dr. Kapik. And, and as I normally say to my listeners, I, I don't get paid for the podcast, but it is a ton of fun to just be sent books um, and then to get to talk with my author, uh, with these authors. I mean, who gets the chance to read a book and then talk with a person who wrote it? So I'm really grateful uh, for Kelly uh, for coming on the show. Oh, well, thanks for having me. This is great. 
Yeah. So the the book is, um, it, you know, talking about our limitations and our finitude as humans. Um, and just for listeners who might have a chance to to uh, get a copy, um, I, you know, I was impressed uh, as just with the breadth of research that Dr. Capic did for this mm. book. Right. So at times he's uh, citing Tertullian, uh, who we'll get to, who my listeners may know. We do a little bit more Christian history in this podcast, uh, but it's, you know, spanning uh, Tertullian uh you know, research on happiness um, and flourishing. Um, I mean, it, it runs the gamut. So you could definitely tell that uh, uh, Dr. Capic is just immersed in a wide range of literature uh, to come to his topic. So it was uh, it was a, a joy to read. Thank you. So thank you. Um, let's, you know, and as, as per usual, um, I like to just sort of send, uh, my guests, uh, some questions that I had as I was reading. So I start with, uh, one of the phrases from the first chapter, the, the chapter is broadly on finitude, but you also use this word particularity, um, mm. and this kind of balance between particularity and sort of universality, um, is something that I think about a lot, but you say particularity means that one has its limits and, uh, can you say something about the aim of the book and how Christian Christianity understands this sort of balance between our our particularity, but then our connection to something more universal? Yeah, that's great. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, just to kind of back up for one second. Yeah, part of the aim of the book, and I and I like how you've asked it in terms of particularity, is we kind of live in a time where we're all exhausted, and uh, I think a lot of us live with a low level sense of guilt. Like there's always more we should be doing. We should, you know, be more places, do more things, no more stuff. And so at the end of every day, we kind of feel exhausted. So what what's driving the book is this exploration of finitude, which is a fancy word for being a creature, right? It's just part of being a creature. And part of being a creature is particularity, right? I'm this creature and not that creature. I'm not all creatures. I'm human, but I'm not all humans. I'm me. <laughs> and so trying to explore that a bit, um, in terms of, I think the way the world and even the church has tried to handle this sense of being crushed that so many of us are feeling is through time management solutions. And I'm really interested in a theological one. So that's what's going on. In terms of uh, particularity and universality, I, I love that you brought that up. And um, yeah, let me, let me give you a little bit on that because... Um, I think there is this tension. Uh, my doctor father, uh, Colin Gunton, who has since died, but I studied with him doing my PhD in London in the late 90s. And he wrote a great book called The One and the Many. And he kind of traces in the history of thought. And given that this is a history podcast, hopefully your readers find this interesting. But he kind of, he's doing it in a Trinitarian lens. I think an anthropological one's better. But anyways, he, he, he follows the tension in ideas between cultures and, and people that stress the one and those that stress the many, right? It's a way mm. of those that stress particularity and honoring difference and those that stress commonality. And part of what's fascinating is he shows the problems with both, right? Mm. And so in one hand, you know, this is a British scholar, but he uses certain forms of communism as, as an example, just pushing sameness in a way that crushes people. But then mm. he turns his gaze to the West <laughs> and says this kind of rigorous individualism is another way of crushing people in particularity. And both mm. extreme forms of particularity 
or kind of this communal vision that is not really communal, but just collectivist is a problem. Mm -hmm. And a, a Christian view of humanity is that we both honor particularity while seeing the individual within the community. And mm. that, anyway, that's a, that's a long way to get to your question. <laughs> we can follow that up if you want. No, that that's great. Well, and I just, I guess that's one of the um, hard things. Like I, I come from a, like a philosophy background and some of the other mm. guys that are on the podcast, uh, we were, you know, we were all kind of trained as analytic philosophers as undergrad. Mm. And one of, one of the guys on the podcast is doing a PhD in analytic philosophy, but we mm. like rigor and we like specificity and definition. Mm. But one of the things that I loved about studying Augustine was that he sort of delighted in this paradox. Um, mm. And one of the things that makes Christianity to me have the ring of truth, um, I think is the phrase uh, from uh, G.K. Chesterton, but is that it, it embraces both. Um, mm. and, and Augustine loves the fact that like you know uh christ is the uh from from a mother without a human father but from the father of all without a mother like he loves these sort of like this yeah. uh, back and forth um yes. both the word eternal and the word embodied um yes, and, and yes, christianity yes. can kind of uh, touch on both ends of those uh poles so maybe also with universality and particularity mm. um it can speak to both yeah, that's part of what's remarkable about the Christian faith is when you take it in its fullness, it really allows the rich, the richness of thinking about things well that reflects reality and doesn't doesn't try and solve challenges with just one answer. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, the tension between universality and particularity is a good example. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you. Um, so just kind of moving through, uh, some of the topics, right? So you, you kind of divide the book, uh, into, uh, two major sections, particularity and its limits, and then healthy dependence. So sticking in mm. that first sort of section, uh, you talk a little bit, I thought this was interesting about the place of Mary. Um, mm. and, and I did not see that one coming, uh, but the, li <laughs> the limits of my body, you, you asked this question, are the limits of my body bad? Praise God for Mary. Um, so mm. one might not expect, uh, in a Protestant, uh, work of theology to be praising Mary in this way. Um, right. but, uh, so can you say a little bit about the, how Tertullian of Carthage, uh, mm. uh, speaks to the particularity of Mary and the limits of her body and why that's a good thing? Yeah, great question. And, and thanks for picking that up. Um, I, I do, you know, if you ask most Christians, including Protestants, you say, you know, do you think Jesus was really human? We know the right answer is supposed to, we all say yes and not our heads. But when you, when you press a little deeper, you know, and start to ask questions, you know, about Jesus and puberty or whatever, whatever the things are that make us uncomfortable, we start to get very squirmish, right? And we start to mm -hmm. feel like it's very impious ground. And, um, and the reason that's important for me is, well, for all kinds of reasons, but our discomfort with Jesus's humanity re reveals quite a bit about our discomfort with our humanity. Mm. And by having a but a, a more robust understanding of Jesus' humanity, we can come to terms with the goodness and rightness of our own humanity. So um, Tertullian of Carthage, you know, as you know, you know, 155 to about 220 AD. So really early church father. But again, many of your listeners will know one of the things that was happening in the early church was this tension with Gnostics and Marcion. We're to make it real simple. 
the flesh or the material world was bad, the spiritual was good. And in that conversation, Tertullian wrote this book, De Carne Christi, on the, on the flesh of Christ. And it's beautiful because he is just unflinching. He can feel where his Gnostic and Marcionite kind of um, opponents, what will make them flinch. And once he feels it, he presses into it. He doesn't back away. Mm -hmm. And so for him, he really focuses on the virgin birth as super important to understanding a full affirmation of the humanity of Jesus. So, you know, it's, it's interesting to me that in modern theology, especially like in evangelical circles, when, when we talk about the virgin birth, we tend to use it as like, oh, look, see, he's divine. Mm -hmm. But it's interesting in Tertullian and others, they're like, mm -hmm. hey, the virgin birth, look, he's really human. Right. And even that difference is so fascinating. Right. So, so Tertullian talks about the afterbirth and he really stresses it in a way that you're like, oh, that's uncomfortable. No, no, no. It's glorious. Right. It's a mm -hmm. God. God's not embarrassed of these things. So the early church, like Tertullian will stress the virgin birth for the humanity of Christ and the physical bodily resurrection of Christ. Both of those are really important to understanding an affirmation of the humanity of Christ. And then thus our humanity. Mm -hmm. So that's why Mary becomes important. Yeah. 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 Actually, I was just thinking about this the other day. I, I have a young son. He's two and a half and he watches some cartoons. Um, and it, and this is a, this is a long way. I'm going to, I'm going to get back to your point. Um, <laughs> no, no, it's good. <laughs> but I noticed that the the images that he looks at, like in these TV shows, are always purified. Um, so the streets mm. are never really dirty. The people are never imperfect. Everything is sort of like a kind of um, uh, a drawing of what things would look like if they were perfect. And if mm. we think about the media that we consume, the magazine covers, and uh, yeah. like we 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 use technology to airbrush away um, all of these things like you know you talked about the afterbirth from Tertullian mm -hmm. uh, but he does not shy away from those things that we would otherwise like to forget um, mm -hmm. about our humanity and and I just thought like it's an interesting thing that that we do when we create certain kinds of art I guess or at least entertainment mm -hmm. we would rather uh, ignore um, <laughs> the fact that you know I spend a and and this is going to get real uh, gross maybe but I have chickens. I have dogs. Yeah. I have young kids. I spend a yeah. lot of time with with poop. Yeah, <laughs> um, totally. and that's just that's just a human reality. Yeah. And like, yeah. I didn't realize growing up that that was going to be such a part of my adulthood. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And and so, like, I I think that's you know that's important from from Tertullian and from this book, like just embracing the fact that this really is what Christ came. Christ, you know, yeah. you know, the Word uh, was made flesh and dwelt among us means that somehow God from eternity uh, was also present to the messy things uh, of the world. Yeah, and and becoming the Son, assuming uh, human nature in becoming man, taking on genuine flesh, and all the that theologically means in no way is sinful. It's God's mm -hmm. great yes to his creation. He's saying, no, 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 I'm the creator. I loved what I made. And let me show you, even though there's sin, I still love what I made and I'm gonna, uh -huh. I'm gonna make it new through my son uh -huh. entering in. And so it really is, as Paul says, Christ is the great yes, he's a great amen to what God has made. He's all the promises find their fulfillment in Christ. So that, that idea of Emmanuel is this incredible thing and I think because we have an underdeveloped doctrine of creation, we don't connect creation and redemption very well. 
and um, and that hurts us. Yeah, so that's kind of one of your big theological points. Do, mm. Am I right in remembering that you actually wrote about the doctrine of creation for your dissertation? Does that go back that far? Or at least the doctrine of creation lies behind the book, right? That's like a, an exploration of the import of of being a create uh, being a creation of the creator. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The the, the creator creature distinction is huge here, and trying to explore. You know, I just you know I've said it before, but I I think you know particularly kind of conservative um, Christians in the West. But for that last 150 years, when we talk about creation, we've reduced the conversation to when God made the earth and how he made it. Mm -hmm. And <laughs> I think that has stunted us because we think that's the doctrine of creation when in fact it's fundamentally about creator-creature distinction and what all that means. And so, yes, this is exploring that because until you have a strong view of creation, you're going to misunderstand who Jesus was, what he's doing, and things like sanctification or the Christian life, right? Is the Christian life just about being forgiven and then waiting until you die to go to glory? Or is there something about living now under God's grace, delighting in his creation, participating in it? And so you need to create, you need to connect creation and recreation, right? Mm. And otherwise you screw up things like sanctification and the Christian life and all these kinds of things. This is real, this is not abstract this is very very pastoral and practical yeah yeah i think of the line from uh cyril uh, of alexandria what was not assumed cannot be saved um now he was using that in the christological debates of the fifth century which is actually something we will turn to in the coming weeks uh but um in for the podcast but yeah i just think of that like you you know we need christ to come to redeem all of that um and to be a part well and not that it's sinful necessarily but just to bring it back into its wholeness so i don't mean mm. to i don't mean to assume that creation in and of itself was sinful but but to turn even the things that we have uh sort of uh, uh distorted uh back to their wholeness yeah, the person who first said that was Gregory of Nazianzus, only what is assumed yeah. may be healed. That's right, and, that's right. Yeah, and what he's trying to get at is this idea that against kind of Apollinarianism, whatever it means to be human, whatever that category is, and to use classic faculty psychology, it's to be human is to have a mind, a will, affections, and a body, right? So all of that, the eternal son of God must take on because all of that's what needs to be healed. Um, anyways, uh, and, and so, yeah, yeah, it's, it, it has huge Christological implications. You're absolutely right. Uh, well, uh, to turn to something that's a little bit more practical, you sort of, uh, this is, I mean, now I'm jumping ahead too far, but I just, in thinking about in terms of our embodied worship, um, mm. and I know that this is really, uh, this is a tricky subject and I'm grateful for technology insofar as it allows you and I to connect. Mm. Um, and it allows uh, people to connect even in the midst of a pandemic of a global pandemic. Uh, but could you say something about the importance of embodied worship and, and how Christians should think about, you know, uh, online worship and that sort of thing? I mean, on the one hand, it feels like a gift. On the other hand, it does seem like we're missing something. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's a, there is a chapter kind of exploring the importance of touch uh, as an example and thinking through that. And worship becomes one of the areas of exploring. Um, and I think it's fascinating going through COVID, wherever you're at on political things and that kind of thing, by and large, people, no matter where they're at, agree like, oh my gosh, 
being together really matters. And when we can't be, it really hurts us, right? And, you know, one of the things I worry about is sometimes we get these romanticized views because, you know, there are believers in Saudi Arabia who have been dependent upon the radio and internet and some of this for these kind of uh, gatherings forever. And mm -hmm. we romanticize it when praise God for the technology that allows them to be fed in that way. But don't don't be mistaken. They long to be physically present with their sisters and brothers in Christ and to, mm -hmm. you know, and one of the things that was fun to explore in a depth I had never done before, but really looking into this phrase, it shows up surprisingly often in the New Testament, but this, the kiss of peace. Mm -hmm. um, and to see, I started exploring it in the ancient church, and it, it's quite important, actually. Uh, there's even times where they basically like, if you don't close out the prayer or the offering with the kiss of peace, we're not sure it was heard right there and it, it even that's worth exploring like what is it it's just something about the reconciliation and the unity of god's people and they, they they wrestled with it as time went on they started to say well maybe kiss of peace is just men to men and women to women and you know um so now everyone just jokes about it and we say well I'll give each other a handshake and whether or not you have to kiss one another there is something about that physical embrace and part of what was so radical in the ancient world was it was a testimony to the world that when you came together in Christ's name, no Jew, no Gentile, male, no female, rich, poor, old, young, and that was radical in that day. And it is radical in our day. Um, and so again, that physical presence also needs to go together with that appreciation of difference and coming together in Christ. And that's a long way of saying, yes, I do think we're impoverished when we can't gather together to worship for sure. Yeah, that that uh, section of the kiss of peace was really uh, fascinating. It's also, yeah, one of the uh, sort of early criticisms, I guess, of the Christians. Mm. Uh, they thought that something untoward was yeah, going on. Like we're doing orgies and stuff like that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's right. There's yeah. evidence of that. <laughs> yeah. And, and what's fascinating to me. You have it exactly right, as you know, because you know the ancient church. There were these accusations, cannibalism, but also the sexual misconduct because of the kiss of peace. But rather than the church freaking out by it, they continued to do it. They thought this is very important because, and one of the things, and Rodney Stark and his uh, kind of history of sociology stuff has shown this. One of the things that helped with the growth of the ancient church was the way the church treated women and children that th they were so mistreated in society, but among God's people, they were shown dignity and respect. And one of the ways that children and uh, women were shown respect was their bodies. Mm -hmm. And I think we've kind of freaked out on some of this stuff, either downplaying or, you know, not dealing with abuse, which must be dealt with. And we need to be serious about that, but otherwise overreacting and, and acting like, well, we can just, talk about good news, but we don't need to physically do anything, you know, and, and undermining some importance of embrace. And what does that look like in a healthy, godly way? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's really good. That's really good. Um, but well, just, just um, to close, just to close your thought on this, it is interesting. One of the most miserable times in COVID when we were at home during a worship, did you have the experience trying to sing in your house? Like with you or you and your family, it was just like, Ed, Ed, how long? And I'm like, I'm not going to keep doing this. This is so terrible. You need to be with each other. 
Yeah, well, that's that's interesting. I uh, so my wife um, used to play in our, the worship band at our church uh, before oh, so we had talented. kids. <laughs> <laughs> well, my son actually used to not like it when she would play the guitar in the house. I don't mm. know why, um, but when he was little, at first he didn't like it. But now, my yeah, my kids love to sing. Uh, so oh, I love it when great. we when we sing. So, oh, good. but. W- but we do find it hard to try to like match what's going on in the music section. I mean, yeah. it doesn't feel right to kind of yeah. like, I don't know why we are singing along with the TV exactly. Yeah. Uh, so that's what I mean. <laughs> yeah. That's what's so awkward about the whole thing. Yeah. I read that in St. Louis, that the Lutheran church and uh, like in a St. Louis paper that the L- Lutheran church was just encouraging people during the uh, Spanish flu of 1918 to just like get together and read scripture and sing songs as families, uh, mm. you know, because they weren't gathering to try to, they didn't want to spread the Spanish flu in the right. local Lutheran churches, um, which, right. you know, that sort of, I, I at least appreciate that. It is always hard. So my kids are very little, six months and two and a half. Mm. Um, so, um, you know, so it was like actually during COVID, it wasn't all that different than what we normally did. <laughs> <laughs> like we were we were at home a lot anyway. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. That's hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah. So but uh, but anyway, yeah, I do. Uh, it is it is awkward. Um, mm. All right. I'm going to do kind of a, a hard gear change here. Sorry about that. Uh, I no did problem. have a listener comment on that the other day. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I like to just switch gears a little bit to get to know the guests a little bit, ask them something that uh, they might not normally uh, get to talk about uh, in their maybe interviews for their book or other things that they do. And it's kind of a fun question to get to know people. So I say, what is one uh, idea or truth that you once held true that you now think is false uh, or vice versa? Um, mm. And and so like, you know, I think someone uh, had the uh, someone was talking about um when they began to love hockey, they used to hate hockey. Then they loved hockey. Uh, totally <laughs> random things like that. Or it could be about the research in the book, something you learned while doing research from the book. So I'll leave that up to you. So it could be something sort of personal um, or or it could have to do with the book. Uh, it's, it's up to you. Oh, that's, I mean, wow, that's a great question. Um, yeah, I used to hate to go for runs and walks and now they're like very important to me. But in terms of maybe theological, something would be more interesting yeah. for your for your um, audience. I was thinking about this because um, I grew up as a kid in a Roman Catholic uh, house, and you know, regularly attending church. I was the youngest of three boys, and and without the f- full story, by the time I was, you know, mid to late uh, elementary school, I had stopped going. Basically, everyone but my my dad had stopped going, and. Um, my middle school years were like people's college years in terms of drinking and all that kind of stuff. Some of that comes up in the book, but anyways, I became, I, I then became a follower of Jesus, got hooked up with this Baptist youth group. And so, uh, got baptized again and really, uh, pretty devoted and, and started learning about my faith and that kind of thing. And I think at that time I would have said, gosh, Roman Catholicism, all that, Church history doesn't really begin until 1517, right? (laughs) (laughs) With the Protestants. And boy, I will just say that uh, for me, Catholicity, the universality of the church has become super important in a way that, you know, maybe was for me as a little kid. I didn't know what that meant. And then I kind of got really nervous about it and ran away. And now I've come back and 
Um, for me, when I see people in the church in our day saying things that I know the ancient church and the medieval church and the reformers wouldn't have agreed with, or there wasn't a lot of affirmation about, it makes me so nervous. And I, I do think, especially in a place like America, we have such amnesia about the church. So for me, Catholicity, the, you know, I'm, I'm a part of a group we'd call ourselves kind of reform Catholicity, but I, I am interested and serious about the historic universality of the church and Christ's faithfulness across all of these denominations that have legitimate and serious disagreements, um, but still can reflect Christ and his kingdom. Yeah, that's they. That's good. It's it's important to me as well as as I sort of think through my own kind of uh, vocation and and particularity uh, as a. Uh, I'm. I mean, some of listeners probably know I. I'm a professor at St. Louis University, a Jesuit mm. Catholic university, but I also teach at a Roman Catholic seminary, um, which is an odd yeah. thing uh, for a Protestant. Um, so I love to make the jokes. The, the joke that the uh, Catholics ha- had to come get a. a a boy raised Baptist to teach them how to speak Latin. Um, (laughs) (laughs) That's beautiful. I love it. (laughs) Um, So you would never expect it, but it has also helped me to embrace sort of this, uh, the Catholicity as well. We've had Mm. uh, Matthew Emerson on the center for Baptist Mm. renewal um, and talk a lot about, you know, Baptists that are also sort of recognizing recovering and um, kind of leaning into uh, the fact that we are a much uh, bigger uh, could, like followers of Christ is much larger than than just our um than just the you know our particular denomination, but like you say, not being disconnected from that history, um, and that of course for me as a historian, a historical theologian is is really important. So I appreciate you saying that. That's uh, that's fascinating. Yeah, no, that's great. Um, so um, one one thing that's also kind of interesting to me as a um I wrote my dissertation on humility in Augustine, um specifically oh. humility in his preaching. Um oh, and cool. so sort of how he how he taught uh uh his church uh this virtue um and what that looked like. Uh but you have humility as an important part of your uh as one of your uh chapter six, uh moving into that healthy dependence. Uh, uh, section. Uh, so uh, can you speak to your understanding of humility and more generally your understanding of, of sin? So you say like, you know, humility is not a sin, which is absolutely right. But one thing I was sort of uh, curious about is how do you understand the nature of sin? I mean, as a reformed mm. theologian, I think too often we we probably hammer home the the total depravity thing. Uh, but that wasn't really part of, of your uh, uh you know, your presentation in here, but maybe speak to your understanding of, of humility. And then, uh, yeah, what, what is the, what, how do we understand sin in relation to that? Yeah, that's great. Yeah. I mean, I am, I am a reformed theologian. I, I actually would affirm total depravity rightly understood by total, as you know, we don't mean utter. We just mean in a person's totality, even in the world's totality, there's no there's no aspect of us, head, you know, our mind, our will, our affections, our bodies. There's no part of us not affected by sin. Um, and you know, I've studied the Puritans and written on actually on sin, so I'm not doubting that at all. However, as you know, like as Reformed theologians and pastors, sometimes the most important thing to us is that we're sinners, <laughs> in such a way that it can undermine the fact that we are. 
creatures made in the image of God, and that is a good and glorious thing. And when you lose that, you actually even start to distort what we understand by sin and the problem of sin. So part of what, what was interesting for me is in this book exploring what it means to be a creature and finitude and the good of our limits, I spent a long time thinking and working through this, and I'll never forget the day when the aha moment finally hit, and I'll spare you all the details, but basically it occurred to me, this is the fundamental question. On what do you build humility? Is the reason that we're supposed to be humble that we're sinners? And I think that is often how we understand humility. And in fact, in the history of the church, that often has been what's been said. You should be humble because you're a sinner. And, and then the way humility gets spun out is it's based on the fact that you are sinful. And I'm arguing that's not right. I mean, now let me be clear. I think the fact that we are sinners should contribute to the fact that we should be humble. <laughs> so don't misunderstand that. But here's a different way of saying it. Even if there had been no sin and no fall, were human creatures meant to be humble? And the answer is yes. Even if there's no sin or fall, humans were made to be dependent upon God, to be dependent upon other humans, to be dependent on the earth. That is what we call humility. Humility mm -hmm. is the joyful recognition of our need and interdependence on others and the earth and our dependence upon God. And that is just a, it's just looking at the real, <laughs> to use Bonhoeffer's mm -hmm. kind of language. That's just how things are. Now, what sin does is it makes it even more distort. It makes it distorted and destructive. But but humility, and if you don't get this, then we think, oh, the way you should become humble is by focusing on your sin, which ironically tends to make people more self-obsessed rather than less, more self-loathing rather than less, rather than the path of humility is glorying in the goodness of your creator starting to live in a joyful recognition of your dependence on others, confessing our sin as, as part of it, um, et cetera. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah, I think that's really helpful. And it, it connects to a conversation we had with Matthew Wilcoxon, um, mm. and he wrote on divine humility, God's morally perfect being. That's the title of the book. Uh, mm. But his book was trying to explore something like what you just said. What does it mean for Christ uh, to be humble? Uh, Augustine calls him the mm. teacher of humility. or and, and actually, in some sense, like Augustine says in the Confessions, that it's almost as if his humility is part of what saves us, right? It's almost mm. that his magnificence. Anonymous humility is part of our salvation. Um, and so Wilcoxon explores that. And, and so I, I felt like, yeah, you, you had a, a good connection to that, uh, that kind of tradition as well. So I think that's, I think it's very well said. And it, and, and, you know, one thing, like sometimes people try to uh, sort of overdefine humility as like, uh, thinking that you could be wrong or something. Mm. Um, and, and so I like how, you know, what you just said, they're taking in that direction of recognizing our uh, dependence on God as, as a good thing. Um, and mm. as part of how we understand who we are rather than just, you know, sort of thinking, Oh, I could be wrong. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. You have to make sense of the Christological sides of this and Philippians two, who, you know, uh, he, he wasn't sinning by becoming man. Um, so anyways, yeah, that's, it's, it's significant and it has huge pastoral implications. And I would say in my tradition in the reform tradition, when we don't get this right is one of the reasons why, and I deal with college students who, who many of whom have grown up 
in some misunderstandings. And there is some self-loathing that really needs to be addressed and just some deeply problematic things. And, and, um, the goal is not to just focus on how bad you are, but on how good Christ is and all of that. So anyways, I, I think there's, there's a much healthier way to think of humility that once understood people can actually cultivate humility in good and right ways. And one of it is simply learning to delight in other people and to celebrate them and to stop viewing them as competition. Um, that's a much healthier path than simply constantly focusing on your sin and dwelling on it. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's well said. I don't get to deal with as many uh, sort of students raised in the Protestant and Reformed tradition, mm. but I have had them occasionally. And in my intro to theology class, we always read confessions. Um, and and uh, in the past, I have had students come up and they they're like, well, I was raised, you know, Protestant or I was raised mm. Reformed. And you keep talking about how good we are. Um, and they were like, and, 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 I, and like, they kind of find it baffling. And I'm like, well, for one, that's what Augustine says. You are created good. Um, and, or yeah. not, that's what Augustine says. That's what scripture says. But Augustine yeah, yeah, yeah. is just echo, echoing what scripture says. Um, and they, they're like, well, that, that doesn't seem like what I was taught. And I'm like, well, I, I can't speak to how you were taught, but this yeah. is, you know, this is what, uh, this is where we begin. We begin with the goodness of creation. Um, yeah. and, and we should not uh, ignore and miss that. Yeah. I mean, it's fascinating. A uh, uh, former student of mine, he's now a great pastor and, and friend and, um, but he will ask people sometimes he, he will ask, you know, what is Romans three twenty three for all have right? You know, just kind of start them off and they'll say, well, for all have sinned um, and just kind of stop there, right? Uh -huh. But the verse actually goes on to say, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And you hardly ever hear anyone talk about the glory. <laughs> and mm -hmm. actually that means we were meant for glory, reflecting mm -hmm. this glory. And to understand sin, you have to understand the glory part, the glory of God mm -hmm. that then gets reflected in us by his image. So and in fact, um, since you're an Augustinian scholar, I've realized one of the, uh, and I, I read this in Augustine after, I mean, he shows up a lot in the book, but I only found this after um, the book was published. But at one point, Augustine says this great thing where he says, God has the ability to love what he made, and he's talking about humans in his image, and to hate what we make, which is sin, <laughs> right? And I think that's actually quite brilliant because we, you know, there's a chapter in the book, Does God Like You? And again, a lot of us, Protestants and Catholics, struggle with the idea that God might like us. Well, he likes what he made. He doesn't love the sin. And we think, mm -hmm. well, if he doesn't love the sin, then you you can't say the other. And Augustine's kidding. No, no, no. He, he likes what he made. He loves what he made. He doesn't like the sin. So he's going to deal with the sin in order to renew what he's made, right? That's a beautiful yeah. idea. Yeah. And, and I thought as, you know, as I was sort of going through your book, I just, I felt like replete throughout it was that sort of, I, I think it's almost an Augustinian posture of mm. uh, recognizing uh, that creation is God's good gift. Um, mm. And, and so, you know, and what it mean you know, part of humility is, uh, is probably is just being willing to receive. Um, mm. And, and that's, and, you know, I, I wonder what, uh, you know, sort of really drawing out that spirituality would look like, but, but, um, 
you know, in a more uh, a holistic way. But I felt like this was a lot of what your book does is just try to inculcate that in people uh, that it's okay uh, to mm. be to ha to receive and to be finite um, and mm. to be comfortable yeah. with that. And so I really uh, I just appreciated that uh, emphasis. Um, all right. So the last thing that I wanted to talk about uh, that was kind of striking to me was, um, well, what exactly is almost like what is what is the church? <laughs> mm. um, but, um, you know, because I do find a lot of people who sort of hate the institutional church yeah. and um, that that seems to be a refrain. And it's not exactly clear why we gather together. And sometimes mm. it does sort of feel like. Uh, just a voluntary association of like-minded people. Um, I think I've heard Howard Wass say that. Um, but mm. um, it, in one of our, your final sections, you encourage Christians to think about loving the whole body. Uh, so why is it so easily missed by Protestants and why it might be beneficial for Protestants to have this kind of more stronger ecclesiology, the importance of, uh, in, your, in your section, you talk about how as the body, we're doing all of these different things. Mm. Um, so we, you know, how we can, uh, lean on each other for uh, for so much? Yeah, it's a great question. And I, I do think it's super uncomfortable for us as Protestants, especially, you know, it depends even within the denominations and Protestants, but we have a pretty weak ecclesiology, pretty low mm -hmm. view of the church often. And um, I think it's fascinating that even the denominations that have really kind of pushed that are now kind of in a panic because what's happened is when you have a low ecclesiology and then you have media and that kind of thing that has just made it's not that there never were scandals but now it's just very public constantly right so you have the mark driscoll stuff you have all of mm -hmm. this you have priests who are falling serious scandal uh sexual scandal other kind of abuses and i'm not denying any of it i actually think it's probably way worse than we even know so this is not you know the narcissism i'm not denying any of that and so in light of all of that it is just now fun to critique the institutional church and mm -hmm. it is insane to try and defend institution, institutions at large, right? Media, politicians, institutions are just right now viewed very, very low. And so it's very difficult to be someone who I found myself going, guys, I see it all too. I totally agree with you. Institutions deeply, deeply matter. And you're mm -hmm. going to see the utter chaos that happens when you get rid of them. Right. And mm -hmm. it, it's interesting, again, as you're an early church uh, theologian, historian, I've been thinking afresh about the Donatist controversy. Right. So many listeners know, you know, what happens when when the priest who baptizes you or who marries you ends up denying the faith and, you know, that kind of thing. Well, what happens when you're, you know, when you're married by Mark Driscoll or you come to faith under Driscoll's mm -hmm. preaching? Right. Or you name the person and then it's scandalous. And you're like, you're like, I don't even know, is this person a Christian? I don't know what to think about it. And when you've developed such a low ecclesiology, it actually shows, despite what we're saying to the contrary, we are utterly dependent on charismatic personalities. And so if that fades, what happens, right? So is your faith. And so people are like, I guess my faith needs to deconstruct. I need to give it up. Well, and I agree, we got to, examine our faith, get rid of the junk. I'm not against those sober analysis. But anyways, I do think it's it's fascinating. We desperately need a healthy view, not a romantic view, but a healthy view of the church. And there is a reason why you have Protestants, especially young Protestants, who are leaving for Rome, who are leaving for Eastern Orthodoxy, because it's so much more stable 
and it's not just politicized and just chaotic. And I don't blame them for that. That is appealing. Now, anyways, that's so so that's one side. Does that make sense? I mean, I can say some more, but oh um, yeah. And then the other the other thing that I heavily push in the chapter is just this idea of um, you know, I had I had someone call me a, a who's minister in California and he had read, you know, Matthew 25, which he'd read tons of times before at this sheep and the goats episode. And he just very soberly just said, I, I don't know what to do with this. And this is a godly guy. He's been to seminary. He knows, you know, he's like, I don't know. Am I a goat? I don't, I don't see prisoners, right? I don't, I don't have time. I'm not going to homeless shelters. I'm not clothing people. And we tend to say, oh, don't worry. Jesus did it all. You're good. But it, then we don't take seriously what Jesus has actually said, right? In that passage, the thing that separates the sheep and the goat is, are these actions. Without unpacking the whole chapter, I would just say the answer has to be that you and I do need to, to clothe the hungry, to feed, you know, feed the hungry, clothe the naked, visit the prisoners, uh, have the euangelion, have the good news preach to the poor. But it takes, and here's the thesis of the chapter, it takes the entire church to be the one body of Christ. And mm -hmm. so when someone is doing these things in Jesus' name, as I'm united to Christ, I am united to them. And we are all doing them together. And so that the task is not for me as an individual to do everything. It's for me to be faithful with the things God has called me to because others benefit by my faithfulness and I benefit from mm -hmm. theirs. So again, it's a push against this individualism and autonomy to we are particular within this universal church, and that is vital. And that can help us value the church rather than be condescending about it. Yeah. Uh I mean, there's there's so much to chew on in there. Mm. I had I you I think you explicated beautifully the Donatist controversy and why it still matters, uh, given the you know the issues that churches are seeing. Uh, like you brought up uh, the rise and fall of Mars Hill podcast, or well, M Mark Driscoll, but at least for me, it's fresh in my right, mind yeah. uh, because of that podcast. Mm -hmm. I, I, I. I kind of want to steal that. Uh, I like. I would think that, but you should write that somewhere more explicitly. Yeah. I love it. Uh, you're, you're. I think that's that's really good. Um, I, you know, and, and you. then the part the part about Matthew twenty five uh, as well. You know, it's it's a good point. You know, and when I hear that, my thought goes to uh, my advisor wrote a book called The One Christ, um, and it's about uh, uh, Saint Augustine's uh, theology of deification. Uh, but aside from those kind of questions, uh, one of the points, uh, one of the things that he draws really heavily on is the the whole. Uh, the to it's called the totus Christus. Totus Latin. Christus, but, yeah, yeah. But that's it, right? So we're all one uh, with the person of Christ in the church. So you know what you you know what you explicated is is exactly right. How Augustine understands that we all act as one. Um, mm. So we get you know, and and I think that's. Uh, that is again the power of the church um, to both, mm. uh, you know, how we can both own our. I think you know, I'm I'm totally with you in terms of being willing to own our sin, to being willing to recognize the places that we've fallen short and hurt people, uh, but also the good uh, that that we can offer because we are united um, to Christ. Um, so mm. where is Christ now? To some extent the church mm, <laughs> um to some, yeah, you know right. and i don't mean to say the sin that's of right. the church um no, right. but 
Uh, yeah, well, well said. Well, I have uh, really benefited from this conversation. You've given me a lot to think about. Um, so I just want to thank Dr. Kapik again, both for the book, uh, for this conversation. So for, for my listeners, um, I thought, I thought maybe I could, uh, well, either, um, I should give you the final word, uh, but I did love how you ended the, it was like a sort of a prayer. Um, Mm. but, uh, you, the very last page of the book, uh, Beloved, you you and I are secure in the love of the Father, the grace of the Son, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. May this security allow us to celebrate our limits as part of God's good good work. Um, I mean, the, all of this is just really good. May this security drive us back to our God, to one another, and even to our right dependence on the rest of this creation. Uh, may this security encourage our work, liberate our rest, and free us to love and serve others. God made us to be limited creatures, able to freely participate in his work, confident in its confident in his presence and grateful for his promises and provision. Let us appreciate the goodness of our finitude as we rest in the love and provision of our infinitely good God. Uh, may it be so. Uh, beautiful words. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think a great charge uh, for um, the the church uh, as we are right now. So um, I just want to say, you know, so I'll give you the final word, but I thought uh, that was uh, beautifully written. Oh, thank you so much. And this has been great. I really appreciate you doing this. All right. Well, thanks to Dr. Kapik. Um, and uh, thanks for being a part of A History of Christian Theology. Uh, we will be back with more conversations with Tom and Trevor. Um, and we've got some other uh, interviews lined up. So stay tuned. <laughs>